folks. This is a fundraising pitch. Uh, you might have noticed that the show's been on hiatus for about the last six months. Okay, why? Well, I've been producing the Korea File ad-free for the last three years. That's 68 episodes. And it takes a lot of time and effort to track down interviews, research, edit, and produce the show. Of course, I gotta work to pay the rent, which doesn't leave a lot of time to focus on the podcast. So I'm wondering, is it possible to turn this into a part-time job? Maybe, but I need your help. Go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and throw me a few dollars a month for the price of a cup of coffee at Tom and Tom's, for the cost of a sandwich at Isaac Toast, you can help turn this podcast into a sustainable project. And patrons get perks. For an ongoing donation of just $4 a month, you'll have access to extra content that you won't find anywhere else online, including bonus interviews and special subscriber-only episodes. If you can afford to contribute a little more every month, $10 donation gets you exclusive VIP access to information about upcoming guests and the opportunity to submit questions for future episodes, a kind of executive producer position. But hey, every dollar helps a lot, and listeners like you can help to sustain this podcast. So if you can contribute, again, go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and donate a few bucks. Thanks. All right. Here's the episode. Broadcasting from Ann Arbor, this is The Korea File, a bi-weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the Korean Peninsula and the world. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode... The Koreas are officially at war, a situation that's remained unchanged since 1953 when an arms disagreement was signed by China, North Korea, and the United States, ending hostilities on the peninsula without achieving a final peace settlement. The long stalemate between the two Koreas has prevented countless opportunities for social, cultural, and political exchanges, with occasional exceptions, which is why I, Jonathan Keefe's area of study is so interesting. In his research, Keefe, a Korea Foundation postdoctoral fellow at the University of Michigan's NAM Center for Korean Studies, explores an unconventional perspective on the relationship between writers in North and South Korea. Here, in the first of a two-part conversation, he discusses the real as well as imagined ways in which literature of the post-war period managed to cross the 38th parallel and attempts to outline a more complicated and nuanced understanding of what division literature has meant in Korea over the years. This episode was produced in collaboration with the University of Michigan's NAM Center for Korean Studies. Part of what I'm looking at here is the fact that even after the 38th parallel border um, was more or less closed to people, things kept moving across, and in particular, media and text. And what I found was that people, writers in the North, in North Korea um, in the 1950s and 60s especially uh, were actively reading a wide range of South Korean publications. That was something that I was not looking for but kind of popped out to me um, and was something that I just kind of couldn't not pursue and that's kind of how I got into this project in particular. So tell us more about these exchanges. People often assume that because it's an ongoing state of war between the two Koreas this would prevent all media from going across the 38th parallel but 
in your area of expertise, you have uh, done a lot of research on the genre of division literature. So tell us about division literature. Division literature, I'm not sure if I would like to use the term. Um, there is some controversy um, in scholarship on Korean literature about that. Um, it can be multiple things. Um, some people uh, use it in a pointed sense to mean to relate to content, right? So texts um, that engage with the problem of national division, right? So that's one way of thinking kind of narrowly about division literature. So in terms of the issues and you know imagination that it presents in its content. Other people use it in a broader sense to talk about the literature of the age of national division. And then there's a kind of attempt to make that more complex by saying, for example, that all literature produced in the divided nation is division literature because at least in the way that premises and ideas are structured, they're always structured in terms of that other state that can't necessarily directly be referenced or can't be talked about in the way one would want to. Um, but that kind of absence is structuring or kind of the ongoing Cold War division, the ideological conflict is always informing how all literature is produced. So that's a kind of more nuanced way of saying that all literature is division literature. What I'm trying to do is related to that, but also in a certain way has a more concrete premise, which is not only were North and South Korean literature constructed as entities, you know, in the age of division in opposition to the other, but actually also in actual dialogue with the other. So, so for example, in what I'm talking about here, North Korean writers were not only thinking about their work as something other than South Korean literature, but also doing so by actually reading what writers in the South were writing and reading a lot of those texts. So just to step back for a second, when we think about national division um, on the Korean Peninsula, I think there's a, there's a popular imagination that is associated with that and that most people, I think, are pretty familiar with. So we'll get images of the heavily fortified military demarcation line. Uh, we'll get images of kind of face-to-face -face confrontation at the Joint Security Area in the DMZ. You also will often see images of uh, separated families, so families that are still separated, um, that cannot meet, and even if they're very lucky to be able to participate in certain events where they can meet, it's very momentary, right? It's in a set place at a set time. So these are, I think, images that we have in popular consciousness, which are accurate images. Um, one of the things that I was trying to bring out was that there's another dimension to the history of national division in Korea. We know that the, the, the peninsula was divided in 1945 um, at the end of the Pacific War and the, at the time of the fall of the Japanese Empire. This was something that was uh, suggested by the United States and it was a suggestion accepted by the Soviet Union. Um, the intention was to administer the Japanese surrender in two different uh, domains, right, to do it in a speedy way. The 30th parallel, that was a strategic decision. It's not a natural boundary. Um, it's not a historical boundary. I mean, you can see there are images of, for example, you'll see villages where the 38th parallel line is kind of really kind of marked in the sand in the middle of the village. The reason I bring that up is because even after that line was drawn, it was a line that could be crossed in both directions, right? And even if there were U.S. military or Soviet military or other guards protecting it, people were crossing back and forth. So this is kind of still a dynamic and active context. And actually what happened was one of the things that National Division did was to territorialize or to kind of 
materialize in space political and ideological divisions that had existed in Korea for decades already. So political left and political right, um, which already existed in a complex form for decades, um, were now associated with two different spaces, right? And what that did was kind of make national division into a kind of filtering mechanism. So the border became a filtering mechanism. So people felt a desire to, or they felt compelled to move to the space, right, that um, they wanted to associate with them. So, so people moved a lot. The line was arbitrary. It was arbitrary. There were leftists in the South and there were rightists in the North, and there was no real reason for people to be geographically stationed in one place or the other. Right, so people moved, and um, that kind of continued 1945 through 1948, and then flared up again at the beginning of the Korean War. And then really kind of more or less came to a trickle in the middle of the Korean War and then, you know, has remained to be kind of a trickle after. But then but then people continued to engage in these mediated fashions through flow of texts. Um, so how do we how do we know that? If you read North Korean publications with this question in mind, it's actually pretty obvious. For example, you can read uh, Rodong Shimun, the, the main state-sponsored uh, daily newspaper. You'll frequently, there are frequently uh, articles about the current state of society, culture, politics in South Korea. They're obviously very critical. Um, They usually call South Korea a living hell. Um, That's there all the time. The characterizations that they make are less interesting than where they say they get their evidence, which is, in many cases, South Korean publications. If you look at these articles, for example, 1945, I mean, sorry, 1954, 1955, 1956, you can see throughout these post-war years, too, you can see articles, they say they're reading um, most of the major daily newspapers in South Korea. They're reading Dongha Ilbo, Joseon Ilbo. They're reading Jaeyu uh, Shinmun. They're reading Kyunghang Shinmun. They're also reading South Korean uh, newswire services. They're reading kind of yearly annals like Hanguk uh, Kyunggam. Uh, um, and sometimes they'll even have images that are supposed to show the dire state of South Korea, and then they'll say, oh, this image comes from this South Korean publication. The footsteps of that reading are kind of easy to track um, in that journalistic space, and the same thing is true in the literary space. So one thing you'll find if you look at literary journals like Joseon Munhak, which is kind of the main um, North Korean literary journal, you'll find critiques of contemporary South Korean literature. Again, what's less interesting in a certain sense is the characterizations of the literature. And what's very interesting is the examples that they choose out to substantiate those characterizations. So they'll say, well, if you look at this short story by this author from this journal, you'll see this. Look at this one. So you can check which publications they're reading. How were these documents, these writings, uh, brought across the border? So this was like soon after the war, the border was porous, much more porous than it is today. Were they smuggled? Were they, was it easier to get them across than smuggling? I don't think they were going, coming across the border. Um, so after the war, the border was not porous. I think because the war came to a halt with the armistice rather than a peace treaty, it has remained a heavily fortified militarized border. So I don't think the publications were coming across the 30th parallel. This is something that I'm looking into now, so I can't give you an answer. But they're, I think they're coming around. So I think they could be coming through Japan. I don't have any direct evidence to say that. However, there is some evidence that texts from North Korea, at least a very small number, came to South Korea through Japan. Um, And we know that there was a population in Japan that had very strong ties to North Korea. So they could have been going that way. 
It's possible they were also going through China. However, I think Japan is probably more likely. Anyway, this is something that we have to that I have to look into that I think would be interesting. It's it's a harder problem. What are some recurring themes in this writing, and what's the tenor or the tone of how these writers approach the subject of a divided country? It changes, especially in this periods that I'm looking at here, um, especially the late 1950s, early 1960s, or we could say maybe more broadly mid-1950s through mid-1960s, it's framed less as an ideological problem and more of a problem of imperialism, anti-imperialism. So there's an attempt to always characterize national division as something produced by the United States as an imperial power. And that means that national division is a problem of nation interrupted by empire. And that's a significant way, um, that's a significant uh, kind of trope and trend in the way national vision is being talked about in this period. There are a lot of things you could say about that. I mean, one of the strategically useful things about that framing, so part of what I was discussing uh, in this work is a series of open letters that were written by uh, North Korean writers to their colleagues in the South. And almost always, or very frequently, uh, what is discussed in these letters, what you get is not only a kind of exhortation to reclaiming some kind of national cross-border solidarity, and what you get is not only that, and not only kind of a sense that that requires a rejection of the American presence, what you also get is a series often of reminiscences about a past, a pre-national division past, shared together between the letter writer and the stated recipient of the letter. Um, so a past, often um, you'll get descriptions of maybe childhood or being in school together. These are often descriptions of maybe having written poetry together or have talked about poetry or literature together, often in some kind of idyllic scene, you know, we were together uh, under that tree you know, on the hill there, you remember, um, we talked about poetry, we talked about the future, um, this, this kind of tone, a kind of tone of, I guess what you could say is trying to be framed as national brotherhood in a often explicitly non-ideological sense. So, you know, we do get letter writers that will say, dear brother, uh, I'm not asking you to, to become a communist. I'm not asking you to believe in, in Marxism. I'm just asking you to stick to your national conscience, right? So to to not sell out the nation to empire. Um, and often what these letters say, interestingly, is what I'm asking you is to return to that former self, right? So this idea that contemporary South Korean culture and writing is a debased culture, something that has been corrupted, and that there was this time in the past when there was solidarity. Uh, so that all that's necessary is an engagement with that past, right? It doesn't have to be that the people in the South kind of have some ideological conversion, they just have to go back to that place. That's the Korea file for this week. To see I. Jonathan Keefe's full Nam Center lecture, check out To a Poet in the South, literary exchanges across the 38th parallel in 1950s, 1960s Korea on YouTube. While you're there, subscribe to the Nam Center's YouTube channel at UMICHNCKS. That's U-M-I-C-H-N-C-K-S. 
If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can find new episodes of The Koreophile on iTunes, Stitcher, and Blog Talk Radio, and as a featured contributor at koreafm.net, koreabridge.net, and Anglo Info Soul. Find them and like them on Facebook. You can find The Koreophile there too, and on Twitter, at The Koreophile, with daily links and current news and commentary about the peninsula. And please take a minute to leave a review of this podcast wherever you subscribe. It'll help new listeners discover the show. Then check back wherever you found this podcast on February 8th for part two of my conversation with I, Jonathan Keefe. Until then, thanks for listening. From Ann Arbor, I'm Andre Goulet.